Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferentz.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 86. In today's interview, I sit down with producer, engineer, and songwriter Ebony Smith, and we discuss her career and how it led her to start Gender Amplified, a nonprofit focused on celebrating women in music production. We talk about stuff like how that organization came to be, how to identify and act on good advice, how to navigate the pop songwriting session world, and the importance of not always doing things the same way. Now, before we get into all that, a friend of the show asked if I'd done an intro on taking risks, and I thought about it for a minute, and I don't think I have. So we're going to start off with a question and a very quick answer. Should you be taking risks in your music career? My opinion is a resounding yes. We're not talking about free climbing here. We're talking about making music. There's an extremely low chance of suffering an injury, so I say go for it. Let's push the envelope, okay? Now, I'm pretty sure there isn't a single person listening to this podcast right now that would disagree with the idea that taking risks is bad for art. That just feels like a no-brainer to me. But even though we all agree with that statement, we're not all doing it all the time. Why? Because of all that usual human brain stuff that we've talked about so many times on this show before, like fear of the unknown, sticking to what is familiar or comfortable, blah, blah, blah. We've done piles of that, okay? We're not gonna get into that on this one. Instead, I'm just gonna give you one reason that you should be taking risks in your music. Growth. You grow when you are outside your norm, when you are challenging what you believe is possible. I'd argue that that's almost the only time that you grow. Sure, you can improve your skills as something like a guitarist, right? By practicing all by yourself all day long. But will you grow as a musician or a person? You probably won't. You have to get out there and play with other musicians. You have to interact with crowds. You have to understand what connects and what doesn't. You have to potentially make a mistake in front of people or play a show to an empty room. Other non-music examples, how about lawyers? Do they get better by reading more books? No, they get better by arguing cases. Or doctors, do they get better by going to more seminars? No, they get better by working with patients in the real world. Now, we should acknowledge that Risk is a strange word to use in this case because it implies some kind of level of danger, as if something went wrong, your career would be over, or you might break your arm. But nonetheless, we're going to stick to using that word because it makes this intro more dangerous and more exciting, which makes you more likely to subscribe to the show or to share with a friend. Okay, anyway, back on track. I think risky behavior pays off in art for the sole reason that I mentioned earlier. It pushes you into an area of growth. People say risk versus reward. I think there's always reward. The reward is that you've learned something. You've pushed your boundaries. You took a risk. Let's say you walk into a songwriting session as a new top liner. You put some ideas out there and they just don't stick. It doesn't matter. You walked out of that session better than you were when you walked in because you went out there, you took a risk, you did the thing. Let's say you're a mixer. 
and you took a crazy chance on some weird vocal effect. The band, they didn't like it, obviously, because it was weird. But you learned A, how to do that crazy move, and B, how to approach taking chances like that in the future. And honestly, the more I try to think about examples, the more I feel like in today's world, the only way to reach your full potential and live as your authentic self is to take risks. Look at an artist like Billie Eilish. She didn't become a superstar by playing it safe and staying between the lines. Or people like Sean Everett or Chad Blake. They didn't create the studio careers that they have by making records that sounded like everybody else. So if you're not taking risks in the music industry, then you're probably never gonna stick out from the crowd. And even worse, you may not live up to your full potential. Today's episode is brought to you by Oic Sound, the makers of two of the most unique and useful plugins you're gonna find anywhere. I'm personally super excited to have them as a sponsor of the show because their plugins are an integral part of my mixing workflow, particularly Soothe 2. Anybody that knows me knows that if you ask me for a mix tip, the first thing that is gonna come out of my mouth is, do you use Soothe 2? Soothe 2 is a dynamic resonance suppressor, which is a fancy way of saying it's awesome. I use Soothe 2 every day for stuff like taming harsh vocals, controlling resonances in poor recordings, or even some gentle tonal balancing on the master bus. But for me, the real secret is the sidechain feature. Soothe 2 has become my frequency unmasking Swiss army knife. Set up instances of Soothe 2 on tracks or groups of tracks that are fighting for space with your vocal. Then trigger the sidechain with your vocal. Absolute magic. Your vocal will just kind of lean forward in the mix and sit perfectly. We can't go without a quick shout out to OX Sound's other plugin, Spiff. Think of Spiff as the frequency specific transient focused sister of Soothe 2. Spiff has saved me hundreds of times when I get an overcompressed vocal with those spitty, harsh consonants. It gets taken care of immediately. I would not be telling you about OX Sound if I didn't believe these tools would improve your workflow. These tools are in a category of their own. Your Dynamic EQ, Multiband Compressor, and Transient Shaper will not do what these do. So jump over to oixsound.com, that's O-E-K sound, and check them out. There are tutorials built into the plugins to help you understand their full potential, and there's a fully functional 20-day trial. So go grab the demo and try them in your music today. Today's guest is music producer, engineer, and songwriter Ebony Smith. Based out of Los Angeles, she has been a house engineer for Atlantic Records for 10 years, working on projects for artists like Cardi B, Janelle Monet, Jason Mraz, Charlie Puth, and Mr. Wise. She's also the founder and president of Gender Amplified, a nonprofit focused on celebrating women in music production. She's got a master's in music technology from NYU, and she's currently a governor for the New York chapter of the Recording Academy. So, lots to talk about. Welcome to the show, Ebony Smith. How are you, Ebony? I'm good. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this would be fun. I got a whole list of things that I wanted to ask you, but um, something that I really wanted to make sure we talk about is Gender Amplified. So yes, do you want to tell us about that? And then we can kind of like crossfade that into like how you got into music and how this whole adventure is going? Absolutely. So uh, Gender Amplified is a nonprofit that I founded that supports the advancement of women and girls in music production and audio engineering. Um, I started Gender Amplified in 2007. That was when we did our first event. Uh, It was coupled with my senior thesis project on women in music production and hip hop. Since that time, how we think about gender, the conversations about gender have expanded. So we've also expanded our definition to include non-binary producers and trans producers, as well as our male allies who are incredible supporters of our community as well. Our discourse around gender aims to use music production as a template for understanding how to build more awareness and to foster deeper conversations among creatives, but also just among the various communities of music enthusiasts. 
That's awesome. What's the program look like? Are you taking on younger girls and women that are interested in music or, or you're helping connect people that are already working? What, what are some of the things you guys are doing? So one of the primary ways we reach our mission statement these days is through our camp program, which is called the Control Room Series, which we hold in New York City. Cool. We have received a handsome amount of funding from Warner Music Group to organize these camps. And we've been partnering with a number of really cool organizations, most notably uh, Serato, for example, who we will be conducting a camp with in March in uh, Brooklyn, New York, in conjunction with our studio partner, Hyper Ballot, um, in the heart of Bushwick. Nice. So our camps are invite-only they require an application uh, to be considered for involvement. Um, our cohort currently is 17 to 18 producers who we bring in for a number of different camps and we keep very close tabs on them. And we use the application process to pair them in groups of three for our camps. In terms of the way our camps look, they're usually about three to four days in length. And the producers come together over the course of three to four days to produce music in three different small studios that are within the larger complex of the Hyperballad recording studio that we use. At the end of the three days, then we work to get placements for the music. Uh, so we actually were able to place one of the songs in a universal feature film nice. that will be coming out soon. Um, and we're dedicated to doing more sync opportunities as well as more music placement opportunities for the songs and also putting them out as independent releases through our current music distributor. That's cool. That's cool. So are you kind of running these these camps like more like the standard writing camp that I'm sure you've engineered and produced sessions in, same as I have, where you're like, hey, we know so-and-so is looking for things. We know so-and-so is looking. Or do you kind of let let everybody write their own thing and kind of look for a home afterwards? Yes, the, the latter. So we started off our pilot program in 2019 focused around artist camps. And then I quickly abandoned that idea because the music wasn't coming out. Right. The artists were coming to the camps, you write a lot of songs and then nothing was happening. And sometimes that's um, not necessarily because there was ever any misleading intent. I think sometimes artist plans just change, artist direction changes, you know, so there are a lot of things that could happen that could cause an artist to change what the original plan was. Right, seen that. I felt that it would be more beneficial to bring these artists together to write and just build catalog and to have fewer prompts and briefs and just allow them to explore um, the studio facility that we have is really amazing with lots of vintage gear and analog synths. And so it's really a playground for them in a lot of ways where they can expand and build out a skill set using equipment that they ordinarily don't have access to. Very cool. So giving them space to create unfiltered without a lot of interference is nice because they're able to come up with very unique sounds. And then we can, on the back end of that, go out and pitch the music accordingly. Because sometimes music supervisors, A&R artists, sometimes they don't know what they're looking for. Even if they give you a brief, they're not entirely sure. Yeah. So coming with something that's new and different and eclectic sometimes is right up their alley unbeknownst to them. So, you know, we allow our artists to just create with a lot of freedom and, you know, try to land that music after the fact. 
Cool. Do you find that some of the teams that you pair up, do they end up continuing to write? Mm-hmm. Like after after the camp's over, they become like super close? That's kind of the best part of it. And really it's the point of it, right? When I started Gender Amplified, one of the reasons I started was because I was writing my thesis paper in college on women music producers. And once I started doing the ethnographic research around these women, I noticed that very few of them knew each other. So Gender Amplify was developed out of the spirit of wanting to take these women who I was theorizing about in my thesis and bring them together so that they could actually communicate and know each other and work together and potentially build businesses and build relationships, creative relationships with one another. That is still the spirit, the same as the genesis of Gender Amplify. So we would, in my opinion, be doing the producers a disservice if we didn't set up a platform and a framework for them to continue to grow and to continue to collaborate outside of our camps. And that's really one of the main motivating factors for me. So a question about those early days when you were connecting women that were already working in music. Mm -hmm. Were they really excited that there was somebody out there like trying to connect the dots? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. They were very excited about that. And They wanted to know about more people. And funny enough, there were already tons of organizations. It seems today that the push around women in music production is new. But hip hop culture, for example, was one of the early adopters of mission based activism, such as equal pay for women DJs, equal opportunity for women DJs. And I think it's very important to note that in the hip hop context, the DJ for the longest time was the music producer. Right, right. Those two roles were intertwined. So um, there were many organizations that were looking at equity for women DJs in hip hop. And I benefited from knowing one of the founders of an organization named Femix.com. The founder of that organization was a woman named Tashelle Wilkes, and she took me under her wing when I was in undergrad and basically gave me the charge by saying, why don't you organize a conference around your thesis? And if you do that, I will help you because she had these relationships in New York. She was already throwing DJ parties and beat battles. And this was happening early 2000s in New York City at places like SOBs and other venues that she was renting out to hold space for women producers and DJs at that time. So there's always been a thirst for community among women in music technology. And I am just really continuing a much larger legacy and a part of a much larger lineage that has been established for a very long time. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I think I'm a little bit older than you. When you first started, the internet was... The internet was a thing, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like as connected as it is now. Now it's like if you want to find somebody, it takes 20 seconds to find, you know, all of their social media and connect. Do you see a lot of people making these connections organically because the internet has all of this, you know, social networking? Absolutely. And I think there are a lot of women producing who are breaking themselves on TikTok. They're breaking themselves on Instagram It's really fascinating to see Um, even YouTubers uh, who are finding interesting ways of engaging audiences and not only 
getting eyeballs on their content as they're making music, but also breaking their songs. Right, right. That's awesome. So it's pretty cool to see the ways in which the internet has leveled the playing field in a lot of ways. And it, it seems extreme to say leveled, but really in an interesting way. In terms of exposure, you're finding that women are creating interesting pockets of community, not just for themselves, but their products. Now, as it pertains to the commercialized music business, there's still lots of gatekeepers that run that world. But the internet is extremely influential on them as well. But there's still something to be said for connections with gatekeepers and having people who are in the business who take chances on you and who are willing to help you open doors because that still matters. The music business is still a very insular ecosystem of individuals who have built networks and relationships on trust yeah, and credibility through the vetting system of deciding who gets to come through what door and who gets to stay on the outside of, of said door. And that's typically where the bulk of the resources are, financial resources and marketing resources. Yeah. Having said that, there's still a lot that an individual artist can do outside of that ecosystem these days. Because it used to be if you were locked outside of it, you were just locked out. Now with the social media platforms, you can still build a fantastic music career for yourself based on just building out an audience and a brand online. Yep. It's a really exciting, crazy time when you think about like what, you know, TikTok has done mm -hmm. to level the playing field. It, nobody cares whether you're signed to Atlantic or signed to Capital or whatever. It's just like, what are you making? Do I connect with it? Which is the cool part about the internet is that there's an audience for everything. I've talked about this before on the show. And the people that resonate with your music or your production or your graphic art or whatever it is, they can find it now. Mm -hmm. And like years ago, like you said, there was some kind of human or technology gatekeeper that was keeping everyone from finding the stuff they love. So it's a really cool time. I, I'm, I, I think it's fun. You know, it's, I'll, I'll add to that by saying this. Um, there's an interview with Whitney Houston floating around on the internet where she's just like, if I could do it all again. I would not sign with the record label. I would start my own label. And I had a conversation with my friend about that. And she was just kind of like, well, I mean, without the label, would, anybody, would she have sold that many records? And it's like the thought of a Whitney Houston being completely obscure and us never finding her because she would have just been one of those incredible artists that never got plugged into the label system so that she could, in fact, record records, have those records marketed, packaged, and, and sold to the public because that was the model. And she went, she went that way. But today, she could really entertain that idea if she were coming up today. Yeah. She could really entertain the idea of being able to release her own music independently and build an audience apart from having to sign for a label and it's signed to a label. And that's actually quite exciting. Yeah. Even if it comes with its limitations. Yeah, no, it is cool. It's the, the access to technology, I think, is also, you know, every kid now has grown up with a laptop in their hands. They've had GarageBand. They've been making beats on their phone or whatever. And I feel like everybody is more interested in doing everything themselves. I feel like 
there's a bit of a DIY renaissance going on right now mm-hmm. because people can. They can take it from their phone all the way to DistroKid, and now DistroKid has AI mastering, which we'll, we'll leave Ooh. AI mastering out of it. But Ooh. that just gave me a headache. <laughs> yeah, totally. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Well, let's talk about, I think, if I remember correctly in in my reading, you started Gender Amplified when you were like 19, I think, right? Yeah, I I was probably more like 20. Okay. What led up to that point in your life? You know, still being early in your music career, still being in college, where you saw how important it was to have an organization like this. Mm-hmm. So, I wasn't attempting to start an organization. So that's the first. <laughs> that's, the, that's the first thing. I was trying to figure out a way to write my senior thesis on something I cared about. Okay. So I was I was an Africana studies student at Columbia Barnard College, and. I was coming from Africa. I had studied abroad my junior year. That's cool. So, I mean, I two years of school, five semesters stateside, one semester overseas. I mean, you know, it's hard to kind of come back to hot dogs and, you know, tacos at that point. You know, like I, <laughs> I all over the world. I had had a fantastic time living in Africa and I was like, if I can't write this thesis on something that I care about, I'm dropping out because I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a music producer. And that's I was full steam ahead with that. I had purchased equipment. I was producing artists. I was, you know, had my own band on the continent of Africa and working with all types of incredible producers on the continent, learning how to make records. So I really wanted to come stateside and just go straight ahead with that. But I also felt a deep responsibility to finish my studies. So, you know, because why I drop out with one year to go, right? So I told my thesis advisor, I was like, I got to write this thing on something I care about. Can I write it on women producers? Because that'll give me a jump start on what I'm trying to really do. Yeah, yeah life, you know, so I wanted to meet these women. I wanted to know if they were even out there, you know, like, were there other women? I had a deep curiosity for these women, but also wanting to learn from them. And once I started doing the research, which obviously began on YouTube and Google, and I started to find all of these organizations that were hosting beat battles. That was a big thing in the early 2000s was beat battles. And they were happening all over New York City. And I found a few that were being hosted for and by women. So I started reaching out to a handful of these organizers and started to ask them about the DJs and producers in their collectives. 
And I found a few collectives. There was SheJ.net. There was Femix.com. There was a, the this group called the Anomalies, which was a and is still a group of women MCs who produce their own records based in New York City that was uh, headed by this woman named Pre the Honey Dark, right, who was based in Queens and who I also interviewed for my thesis. Nice. So I was like, wow, this is this underground scene that's a part of an underground scene. (laughs) (laughs) Way underground. Right. It's like an underground scene and an underground scene. And it was just the coolest thing to be 21, 22 years old, running all around New York City, making these discoveries because it still required, to your point earlier, a lot of actual physical legwork because the Internet wasn't doing that work for me. There were a handful of communities. I found some leads on MySpace and Facebook and YouTube, but I really had to get on the train and physically go. Like there wasn't any content or anything like that. With the exception of a documentary that I found that was called Lady Beatmakers Volume 1. That's cool. It was a very lo-fi shot on a handy cam a documentary, probably the first of its kind on women music producers that was produced by Femix.com. And that was really cool, like to be a part of that and, and to learn about these producers. And and so that was the beginning. That was the theoretical and academic portion. Now, once I started identifying these women and doing these interviews and listening to all of the information and the knowledge that they had, and also just hearing their stories that some of them were really atrocious, right? Stories about sexual harassment, stories about not getting opportunities and not getting paid and all these things. I started to say, these women should know each other. They should communicate because I was receiving so much from their stories. And I just assumed that more women, irrespective of their interests, right, irrespective of whether or not they wanted to be DJs or producers, I assumed that more women and more people in general would benefit from meeting these women, knowing who they were. So I went back to the same thesis advisor who now sits on my board of directors for Gender Amplified. And I said, can we do an academic conference uh, conjoining my thesis? She thought it was a great idea. We wrote a proposal. We got a small budget together. I think she went to the provost and the dean of studies office, and we got a small budget to bring a few academics to campus and to put together a comprehensive day of programming, Cool. which included a keynote address from one of the foremost thinkers on hip hop, hip hop culture, rap culture, music production. Her name is Trisha Rose. I believe she is tenured now at Brown University. I believe she's still there. Nice. She was our keynote. We had DJ Spinderella come and give a Q&A. Um, DJ Spinderella from Salt and Peppa, which was a huge big deal, especially yeah. in the early 2000s. We yeah. had all the women from Lady Beatmakers Volume mm-hmm. 1 come and they actually did a panel discussion. Then there was an actual open DJ set that we had at the end of the day that featured DJ Rekka and some other really incredible DJs in the New York, Jersey area. And it was a, it was a wonderful day, but more so than anything, it showed me the power of connectivity, connecting the dots. Yeah. And it was my thesis in action, and I thought that was powerful. Still, didn't think I was starting an organization. I I, 
I just, I did a conference and then I went directly to grad school. When I went to grad school, I saw that once again, there was a need for gender amplified curated spaces and gender amplified consciousness. So I brought gender amplified to NYU. Then when I graduated and I started working at Dubspot, which is now a defunct music production and DJ school, I realized that in that environment, it could benefit from gender amplified consciousness and event curation. So I curated four very successful events while I was there around none other than women producers. And I was able to meet incredible producer like Laura Escaday and and some other really incredible women that we were able to bring together. And this was, you know, me doing what I do best. And everywhere I went, I was able to curate a successful event. Amazing. And then in 2012, I went back to Barnard and said, hey, you know, I'm still doing Gender Amplify. You know, I I was about five years out of college and I was just like, hey, I'm still doing Gender Amplify. You know, why don't we do something else? So we did a music festival in 2013 that was very successful. And one of the things that got me on the radar at Atlantic Records and, you know, when they were looking for somebody to come in and run their in-house studio in New York, that was one of the things that made me an, an attractive candidate. That's awesome. So when I got to Atlantic, I was still interested in doing more gender amplified events. And I, I met a, a colleague who was a Wharton graduate and he was just like, hey, why don't you professionalize this and it's going to help you fundraise if you have a, an actual business entity around this. And I was like, no, I'm not trying to start a nonprofit. That sounds lame. Like, I don't want to do like this. I, like, I'm going to be a music producer. Like, that's what I'm focused on. I'm not running a nonprofit. He was like, no, like what you're doing is a charity, first of all. Like, you're not getting paid for it. And you are, you know, basically, you know, evangelizing, doing the good work and showcasing all these women producers. Like, just it's, it's a charity. You're doing the work. It's, it's not yeah. whether or not you want to do it or not. You're doing it. So you should legitimize it so you can do it effectively if you're going to keep doing it. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, cool. So I incorporated it. Atlantic and Warner Music Group got on board. They've been major donors and funders for the last six or seven years. And they actually took out a, a full billboard spread for Gender Amplified. So you can see it in Billboard magazine if you have nice. this uh, Women's Month issue. We are right as you open the magazine. We are right there in collaboration with Warner Music Group, who's our our chief funder at the moment. So it, it, it has become all the things that so many people knew that it could be. More people knew that it could be than I did because I was really just following the instructions. Like I joke and I say all the time, gender empire <laughs> was never my idea. I, I've just I've just been following this been other people's ideas, but they've been willing to convey those ideas to me and let me run with them because they recognize my talent for execution, which is what I do have a gift for, is corralling people and um, conveying an idea and giving it actual legs through my ability to execute on whatever mission statement may underpin an idea. So yeah, I try to listen when I get good advice, if it's good advice, sometimes it's not good advice, but the advice that I've been given over the years as it has pertained to gender amplified clearly has been good advice because we're, we're healthy and we're strong. And most importantly, we're able to actively and effectively support the producers who are a part of our community, our growing community. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, everybody on this show always talks about, you know, network and community, you know, and that's how they get all their work and that's how they've had the career that they've had. But you really, you're taking community network to the next level. It's it's super impressive. So so props on that. But I I like to ask questions about like how things get put together. So some of these questions might be kind of random, like this one's kind of random. To you, you said that you were like just kind of following the directions and like taking people's advice, probably because you were like in it, you know, and it's like when you're in it, sometimes you don't really see what's going on. But when you said you took good advice, what to you like in your gut made you think, wow, that's a really great idea. I want to sit and think about that. Like, is there something, some of the good advice you got, is there something in in there that resonates? Like, how do you, how did you pick the good ones? Because I think... The good ones are usually the type of advice you can take without needing anything more than what you have. Oh, I like that. Good advice is an awareness of what you have at your disposal. And there's somebody connecting a dot for you. Like, for example, the advice that I was given from Tichelle Wilkes when I was in college, the way she posed it to me was, you're at Columbia University you should do a conference. No one does conferences better than Columbia University. You have all of this access. She's like, it will help you build this out. You're not just Ebony from the block. Like you you actually have way more resources in front of you than you realize you do. And that connected a dot for me that I wasn't aware of because I'm you know, I'm this 21-year-old kid trying to run from this place, right? I didn't want, I didn't even <laughs> want to be there at that point. I was so <laughs> over school. I could not have been more over school. You know, so she was an elder stateswoman who was able to say from the outside looking in, you don't see how much potential there is. If you make me aware of, aware of potential, I can maximize it. Yeah. But sometimes when I'm in it, I, I don't really always see. So having elders, having mentors around who can help put the light bulb on, I think is um, important. And similar to my friend and colleague from Wharton, he said, you're already doing it. That was was really the selling point. He was like, you're doing the work. Like, why would you not want to do the work that you're already doing efficiently? And I've been termed an efficiency expert before. I think it's a bit of a truth about me. I love for things to be streamlined, operations to be streamlined. So essentially he he didn't criticize me, but he did point out a lack of efficiency. And I was kind of like, oh, okay, well, you know, I guess I could clean this up a little bit. It it would make sense to give this some sort of business entity uh, umbrella with which to operate efficiently. And it was when I did that and applied to become an actual incorporated organization and a 501c3 tax-exempt organization, that's when all the doors started to open. Yeah, without that, you probably wouldn't have donors like Warner and Atlantic because they- No, I I couldn't. Probably can't give to something that's not official like that. Yeah, no, that's really, that's cool. The thing you said about good advice connecting, you know, dots that are already there is really, really interesting because it's like you think about, I think about advice like I've given to like an intern or something or, or somebody might hear about an idea that you have and there's always like, you should do this thing. 
that's like way over here <laughs> that there's no road to. And you're like, that's not helpful to me. And I never really thought about it, but it could be so frustrating when you ask for advice from somebody and you're like, mm-hmm. I don't have the money to pay for that or I don't have the access for that. But yeah, the, the identifying what that person already has in their tool set that they haven't connected is really, uh, really fascinating. Well, let me add to that. Both of those individuals, and I'm just using them as examples, but I, I've had many, many individuals like this in my life over the course of my career. Another thing I will say to the credit of these individuals is that they all said, and I will help you. Yeah. You know, of all of the points that they made, that was the the component of their advice that helped me feel like I could take the step. Yeah. In the direction that they were advising I go in. Yeah. Because they both were like, and I will help you. You know, so usually good advice will come from the person that's willing to walk out on the ledge with you because they're responsible too. Yeah. And they obviously believe in it. If they didn't believe in it, they wouldn't be looking to stand in line and help. Absolutely. I want to go way back and ask another random question. Do you know if that Lady Beats Maker Volume 1, is that available anywhere? Is it on YouTube? It's got to be somewhere. You know, it's like goals in life is to figure out how to either do a part two or... Yeah, I was going to say, you need to do volume two, yeah. On my website or whatever. Um, I'll text to Shell about that. Um, I'm sure she has it somewhere as a file. Yeah. Well, if it's on YouTube or something, let, make sure you send me a link. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. I don't know if it ever ended up on YouTube. It was on DVD. <laughs> like that. <laughs> like that should let you know. Well, at least it wasn't on VHS, right? At least it was on DVD. <laughs> it was a DVD. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about your musical background? Like, when when did you start playing music? When did you get into production? How'd that start? Music started very early. I had a toy piano at my home. It was a baby grand, like white. It was tiny, nice. and I was tiny. So I was just... Dun, dun, dun. And so my cousins at their home had a, a actual baby grand. So I guess somehow I connected the dots. And when I would go over for family functions, I would just jump on the, the baby grand and start playing. And then people would be like, how is this baby this good at piano? It was it was just very inexplicable. People were like, she, she really can play. Yeah. And so piano lessons followed that. And I, you know, have been playing piano basically my entire life. Amazing. And I'm constantly working on my skill set as a pianist. And, you know, working to understand, unlock the mysteries of the piano, which there are many, but is my first instrument on the way. I've picked up two other instruments with some degree of proficiency, and that's guitar and drums. And uh, I've also recently picked up the bass a little bit at the urging of a few collaborators, because like you actually can play if you would practice. (laughs) Like (laughs) You might be kind of good and you actually practice up. I've been noodling around with the bass a little bit. I don't feel terribly complicated, but I play some lines on a few of my records. So nice. That's cool. That's cool. I think piano is an amazing way to learn music because it's just laid out the way that, you know, music is. I, I learned playing guitar in the beginning, but I kind of regret never mastering the piano because and it just seems to be like if you understand piano, music just clicks easier. You know what I mean? Like at the musical theory aspect mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, exactly. The musical theory aspect of piano, um, you know, creating the relationships 
between all of your your scales and your chords, you know, your various transpositions and inversions and yeah. voicings. The piano is a great instrument for voicings. And also most of our digital audio workstations are built around um, the theory of the piano and the piano role still serves as the basis for our MIDI framework within our graphical interfaces when we're looking at DAW. So it helps to demystify even that process of inputting notes and inputting MIDI if you have some sense of how the keyboard is laid. Totally, totally, totally. I want to do um, a hard subject change. That's how these go sometimes. I wanted to ask you a question that I like to ask people that went to music school. You didn't technically go to music school. You got a master's degree. Probably not a master's in the arts, right? It's probably... It's a master's in music. Master's in music. Okay, so... And you at one point said you were pretty burnt on Columbia, but then you still went forward. You still did the master's at NYU. What do you think about higher education for music in 2023 when you look at like the cost of going to some of these institutions and then being a musician on the other side? It is, I recently got this question and I answered it this way. Education, when I think about my own experience, it boded extremely well for me because First of all, it gave me a much larger framework for why I was doing the music. Yeah. It wasn't just a means to an end, right? I created a practice around music, the the practice of attempting to understand it, not just to hustle my skill set as a means of making money, which there's nothing wrong with that, you know, but there's something to be said for studying music for music's sake. Yeah. That helped me develop a deep appreciation for the art form and for the practice of music education. And also it provided safety for me because I was able to get access to incredible studios that were on campus. And I had been working in studios that were off campus or were not associated with academic schools and they were very unsafe. You know, I had been in, you know, studios where there was rampant sexual harassment. I've been in studios where there were guns and gun violence, where fights broke out. And those type of things weren't happening at a campus. Yeah, right, right. And I started at NYU when the Clive Davis Institute was probably about four years old. And the Clive Davis Institute had some of the best studios in New York City at that time. Yeah. That was a time when studios were closing. Yep, yep. And the studio culture in New York was so restricted. The budgets at the major label had pretty much completely collapsed. And so studios could no longer sustain themselves. And the big studios with the huge consoles and all the outboard gear, most of those operations were closing and they were selling off all of their gear. Who was acquiring that gear? A lot of the academic institutions. Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah. Berkeley, the Clive Davis Institute, the Bandier program, even full sell and some of the more vacational schools and trade schools. So for me, it made sense because of everything that was going on in the larger landscape. Yeah. Right now, the music business is in a much healthier space today. And also there's more conversation around sexual harassment because of Time's Up, the Me Too movement, so many other initiatives that have worked strategically to shed a light on the imperfections, 
not only in television and film, but also in the music industry and also in the recording studio. So perhaps there's less of the rampant sexual harassment that, you know, was happening when I was younger, but there's still a long way to go. So for me, school was necessary. It wasn't really an option, right? Because it provided safety and it provided access. Yeah, yeah. Today, things are a little different. And I would venture to say a little easier, right? So can you do a lot on your own because you have YouTube University and can you and can you get a lot of access now because you have social media? Absolutely. There's there's a lot of ways to circumvent having to go the institutional route. Having said that, there's no way around educating yourself to get better at your craft and finding a way to get access. There's no way around it. Um, you don't have to go to school, especially if you don't have the money. But I always like to say explore it as an option because you might find that you can get a scholarship. You might find that you can get some sort of sponsorships. Um, and if you can do that, then I think it makes a lot of sense. I don't think it makes sense to overextend yourself to take out a bunch of student loans and to do, you know, I took out student loans. I did that. It's been a heavy burden. Yeah. You know, I don't regret the school, but I wish I didn't have the loans to pay. Right. So it was a trade off. Like I said, when I was in school, there were fewer options. These young people have a lot more options today and they should explore all of them. And I think school is an option before you write it off, at least explore it and try to see if you can maybe find out a way to put together a financial strategy so that you're not shackled by the financial strain. of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that's a really great answer. I think there's there's a level of it, too, that. I think people now, since there's more access, like like you mentioned, you could mentor under somebody, you could pay for a course instead or whatever. Yeah. I think it's important to to learn what kind of learner you are. True. Some people, they do better in that institution. Some people check out and they don't care when they're in a lecture, you know? So um, <laughs> I'm just always curious. I, I, went, I went to Berkeley and, right. and finished in 2006 and, you know, as a long time ago. And, and I, sometimes I wonder to myself, I was like, would I do that again now? But it's a different world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think as long as you put in the work, like you're going to get out of it what you put in. Like if you go right. through the motions at a music school, you're probably going to get an A. Yeah. But you're not going to learn anything. But if you like, if really immerse yourself in the community and take advantage of the like-minded individuals, it's a different story. It's a really powerful place to be. So... I think for particularly for young girls and women, I will say, you know, the element of safety cannot be understated. Yeah. You know, school helped me. I was a 17 years old when I started undergrad and I was coming from Memphis, Tennessee. And I went straight from Memphis, Tennessee to New York City, you know, having Barnard College, a women's college where I could be safe in that prioritized safety. And I'm talking about physical safety. Yeah, yeah. For a young girl, they knew where we were. We had vans that would take us around campus at night. You know, New York City was still very dangerous, a huge drug culture, a huge gun city. It mattered that I had in so many words, the safety net of that institution. Just a group of people that at least had tabs on me if I didn't show up somewhere. Yeah. If I didn't show up to class or because let me tell you, 
trying to get into the music business, I did lots of unsafe things. You know, I, I spent nights on people's couches. I spent nights in the studio. I would just go to anybody's studio. You know, I'm young and naive and hungry and wanting to get better at my craft. I would just get on the train and go anywhere, you know, and I found myself in some pretty sticky situations trying to go to studio sessions and trying to be in the mix and trying to to make beats and be where there was access and resources, you know. So having the safety of school as some type of refuge mattered to me at that young, impressionable age. And it continues to matter. I mean, I'll tell you right now, like, you know, I just went to North Carolina to record a record and there wasn't a lot of Uber out there. So I got stranded at a studio in the middle of nowhere, off the beaten path in the back of the woods. You know, I'm in my thirties now. And I, you know, I'm thinking, you know, in my mind, I'm stranded back here, out here with people I don't know, with no other women, people I've never met. And I have to figure out a way to get home. Yeah. But that's the person I've always been. I've always just been following the music. But as a woman, I have to think about a lot of things that a lot of people don't have to think about. A lot of my other peers don't have to think about as they're just working on music. Right. And a fear of the unknown has never has never stopped me. But there are other things I have to think about. Yeah. So, you know, I ended up just getting a ride with a random, you know, the equivalent of hitchhiking back to my hotel, back to my hotel in the middle of the night. You know, so for the women and girls that are listening who are faced with that added fear, just that comes with the nature of our anatomy. Right. You know, school you know, might be a good resource because it does provide a sense, it does provide a sense of safety sometimes, you know, to learn without having to worry about certain bodily, a lack of bodily protection. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I I have to, before we go, I've got to ask you like one engineering question since I'm I'm a longtime engineer and I know you've spent so much time engineering production. So I know you do a lot of production and you spent a lot of time in the Atlantic studios. You were running some of those rooms, engineering. I was in a lot of pop songwriting production sessions, so I, I kind of know what that atmosphere is like. But as somebody that is a producer, what are some of the things that you learned watching everybody work when you were coming up in the recording studio as an engineer mm-hmm. that informed your production? Absolutely. I've learned so much. I've, I've taken away a few things that I, I'd like to state. So the first thing is, if you're making a track in the room with the artist, never stop the playback. True. That's something I learned from T-minus. And his logic behind that was that that's the way you control the room. One of the producer's main responsibility is controlling the room, whether you're doing it. uh, And you should be doing it musically, right? So it was almost a, a form of hypnosis, right? When he would be producing a track, he would fill the room with music. And he was like, you know, when... You're making the track. You have to understand, don't stop the playback because the writers are writing behind you. So if you're stopping playback constantly, it takes them out of their flow. So you have to learn how to continuously loop the track as you're working on it and change the length of your loop, expanding it, contracting it, adding your various elements, creating different parts in a way that is not distracting to them so that they can continue to work. And it makes you far more efficient because you have to stay on top of your 
toes because as that loop is coming around every time, you have to be figuring out simultaneously how to add in elements in a way that is in sync with the overall flow of the music. Yes. That's something I learned from him. Something I learned from Dave Cobb was, you know, the importance of not doing things the same way every time. There is there is a type of methodology that does not have to be formulaic, right? You can have a method without it being a formula, right? So he was able to show me how to use everything and everybody in the room. Um, that's something that I've taken from him and everybody in the room is a part of the production and how to use physicality to keep people in it whether you're getting people to clap on the record or getting random people to go do gang vocals or got people stomping on the record. How can we use everything, including body parts? How can we use everything we have and to start from scratch to build something great? That's cool. I like that one. I learned from Lack, Alex Lackamore the importance of preparation. He's a musical genius, but that's not why he's who he is. He's who he is because he's exceptionally prepared. I mean, prepared. Like, <laughs> like, like I've never seen preparedness. I learned that from him. He's on time. He comes with his lunch because he wants to be proficient. Awesome. So he brings his food. He's got his charts. They're printed out. He's very meticulous about every little breath of every little line. If there's a string noise somewhere, he's soloing every take. He's going through every comp. He's comping ad nauseum. He's tuning. He is a very meticulous in the weeds producer. I learned how to be that way from him. That's cool. Everything has to be done to a degree of excellence so that Your work is pristine, not perfect, pristine. So I learned preparedness from him, exacting. He's very exacting. He's the definition of discipline and the definition of decisive. Ooh, yeah. Right. So he is the marriage of discipline and decision. And it has been a privilege to watch him work and to assist him and to work alongside him for two incredible projects, Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen. Um, So those are three producers. That's cool. There are more. I could go on and on. Let me just throw one woman in there, Um, Ammon Cielli. I learned from Ammon Cielli the importance of mentorship and the importance of dreaming out loud and uh, the importance of studios, studio culture, excellence within studio culture, building out systems and teams to help artists really reach their goals. Um, Ann Mancielli is the founder of many studios, but most notably uh, Jungle City in New York City. And she's also the chief right-hand engineer and producer to Alicia Keys for the last 30 years. Amazing. So she's been a mentor to me and a great a great friend, also the one of the founders of She Is The Music. So I've learned a lot from her, but just watching her run facilities, I've never worked a session with Ann, but watching her run her facilities and you know what she's taught me about studios and the importance of gear um, is one of the reasons she's been so successful. 
Yeah. I have a friend that has done some sessions at Jungle City. I haven't, and uh, he loved it. Absolutely loved it. Those were uh, amazing answers. I just wanted to, it's like perfect first pristine is <laughs> something that like, I think it has come up on this show so many times, except never those words, because like you you battle perfection, like perfection will stop people from putting records out. But pristine yeah. is the right word to put there. Like you need this to be pristine, not perfect. Yeah. Those were all really great. Everybody should go back and listen to that like two more times because I loved all the language you chose was like really good. Thank you. I'm going to insert that clip into like a bunch of past episodes. So it just pops up every couple of weeks for people. This has been a ton of fun. I've got, I guess, three questions that I close the show with. Uh, hopefully yeah. you have a few more minutes. Are you good? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm here. So one question is just kind of a fun question that I started doing this season. And it's, um, I'm trying to highlight music that inspires you or artists that you think more people should listen to. Is there anything that you really love right now that you wish other people were listening to? I've had Float by Janelle Monet on repeat for two days. <laughs> there you go. One repeat. Like, <laughs> I've been listening to that obsessively and it motivated me to go back and listen to her previous albums, which are I love very much too. Like the Arch Android is incredible and one of my favorite works by her. So I would say... I would say go check that out. I've been in the White Album a lot over the Beatles White Album. Yeah, just been nice. in there, been deep in there. Um, I Paul McCartney's lyricism and melodic command, his command of melody is intoxicating. There's there's something about his choice of even subject matter. Yeah, but how? But the execution of subjects that would ordinarily seem quite playful, quite out of left field. He manages to distill from such whimsical melodic ideas and whimsical concepts, this brilliant melodic, I would even say like weighty ideas, you know, and I don't think that's by accident. I think that's quite intentional. I also went back and listened to The Odd, is it, is it The Odd Couple? Gnarls Barkley, not too long ago. Oh, okay. The second album, is it St. Elsewhere? Hell, I don't remember. Just one of those records. <laughs> the second, listen to all of them. The second Gnarls Barkley, you go check that out. But that's the kind of stuff I've been listening to lately. And also, I really love just like lo-fi beats. Always yeah. listening yeah. to lo-fi compositions and sometimes a little bit of classical. Nice. Well, depending on the mood I'm in. Very cool. Very cool. I, something I wanted to mention, I, I one of my friends has a podcast you were on a couple of years ago, Secret Sonics, Ben Wallach. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so I listened to that, you know, in preparation while I was at the gym this morning. And I noticed that you mentioned like how you were doing podcasts when you first started Atlantic and you were learning and you decided to do editorials about engineers and you were doing stuff about like old Atlantic people. And then you, I just wanted to say that you, you seem to be very rounded in like the roots of people in the industry and like different genres. Mm. And it just all comes together. I think it's awesome that you're just so into everything. And you just described so many genres of music right there. When I asked you what to listen to is it's amazing. I love it. No, it's it's definitely cool. Like it's um I listen to a lot of music. My mother introduced me very early on to Whitney Houston and 
Now, my mother was a teenager when she had, she was 18 when she had me. So a lot of her interests were like youth music of the time. She was into like Whitney Houston and Tony Braxton. She was a, a big R&B head, you know, yeah. that was her thing. And then my stepfather was like really big in soul music and that was his thing. And my great grandmother kept me in church and was Baptist music. And then at school, I was getting into grunge rock and no doubt and Nirvana and Red Hot Chili Peppers. And, you know, I was listening to uh, Bush and like Gavin Rossdale. I was really big into Gavin Rossdale, really big into, you know, Stone Temple Pilots and Smashing Pumpkins. And, you know, so that was that was then. And, you know, over I got into jazz in college, you know. Yeah. Giant Steps, Coltrane, that got me through. A, a couple breakups and, you know, <laughs> and then went to Africa and got into Ivorian music and cult, new music from Cote d'Ivoire by way of Paris and Coupe du Calais and High Life. And, you know, I've been fortunate to also travel a lot of places where I've gotten into the music and in certain Spanish speaking countries and French speaking countries. And so that also adds a different flavor. I think. I say all this to say, and I could say more, but in the interest of time, I say all this to say I've been a lot of places. I've met a lot of people. And a lot of my influences, I'm a, I'm a bit of a sponge. Yeah. I've never heard a type of music that I didn't like that I was just completely repulsed by. Like, I've never heard that music. I don't think that music exists, like, where I'm just like, oh, cut it off. You know, like, I, <laughs> I really like music, but I, it's an extension of my love for people, really. Yeah, that's awesome. Anyway, I just, I wanted to commend you on that because I think it's, it's amazing. So last two questions of the show is, the first one is, was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Yeah, like yesterday, I think I redefined it. I was like, this don't work anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I think I keep adding to the definition more than redefining it, right? Mm, yeah. Because I'm adamant about reaching goals. I don't believe in, I don't believe in abandoning a goal because I haven't reached, or let's just redefine this because I haven't reached a goal, right? It's like, no, right, right. no I want to reach that goal. It's taking me a little longer, but that is still a part of my definition of success, but it is not all I care about, right? So for the longest time, all I cared about was being on the charts, you know, I wanted to have chart charting records and I still want to have charting records, but I also have redefined uh, how I think about that to encompass the idea that, well, to get on the charts, you have to prioritize greatness at what you do. Right. So my my sense of success and my understanding of success has to do with greatness, whether that has to do with proficiency or I'm really coming into a type of sound that is uniquely mine and coming into a, a mode of expressing myself on instruments that is undeniable, right? The idea being is that's how you get to the charts, right? So I still view the charts as being success, a form of success, but I'm not willing to just get there any kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Because if you define the charts as your success point, then you're willing to get there any kind of way. You're You're willing to get there hustling your way into rooms and maybe not doing the bare minimum even just to like get on, right? No, I don't want to get on. I want to be great yeah. and get where I'm going that way, Yeah. right? So um, I'm redefining, repurposing my thoughts on success and really 
allowing my studies and my faith to to inform the ways in which I'm augmenting that that definition. That's awesome. That's awesome. There's a lot, a lot of I'm getting a lot of similar not answers, but a lot of people saying that they add on. They don't redefine. Mm-hmm. They add to and yeah, it's good. It's good. Love it. And then the last question before we go is uh, what right now is your biggest goal and what's the next smallest step that you're going to take to go towards it? Really, you know, I write a year plan every year and each year it gets longer. Love it. I think it was like 20 <laughs> pages this year. It's ridiculous. It's, that's me in my academic training, but yeah, it's really a means of taking stock of the previous year, thinking about where I am and making some sort of vision planning for where I want to be. And what I've, for the last two years, what I've noticed is that peace is my ultimate goal. Living a lifestyle that affords me peace of mind and a sense of sanctity, which requires consecration, which requires, as it pertains to my faith, discipline to achieve and a peace that really surpasses my understanding and, and wanting to rest in it. Peace shows up in different ways. It can look like different things. But it's really my overarching goal and it extends to my musical ambitions as well, because when I set peace as an intention, it trickles into practice for me. Right. Like it trickles Mm, into making beats. It trickles into being into the studio that that overarching imperative of restfulness and mindfulness ends up informing everything I do creatively. Yeah. So peace as a motivational pursuit is the goal for me. I love that. That's beautiful. Can I, can I ask you a question? Maybe I'll cut this or, or maybe not. As somebody that does a year plan and, and reflects back and, and thinks forward, because I, I, I believe that people should do that. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious how you would answer this question, because I know a lot of people avoid that kind of thing because they don't want to look back and see that they didn't hit their goal or that they had some kind of failure. They don't want to reflect on their failures. What happens when you sit down at the end of the year and you look back and you're like, I didn't quite get this thing the way I wanted to get it. How are you inspired to go forward as opposed to defeated? That's a really great question because, you know, when you have a lot of goals, you can't reach them all in a year. That's true. Right. One of the things that I do is I print my year plans and I keep them with me. So I take them everywhere. I I bound the one last year. So I took it everywhere. So I would, you know, try to make a practice of pulling it out once a month and reading it. And that's the thing that keeps you on track. Yeah. You know, because then you get down to like October and you're like, well, shit, I need to do that. <laughs> like, <I'm> just, <laughs> ah, yeah, I said I was going to do that. And I, I did that with one of my goals last year. I got down to like October. And I was like, oh, I only have three months to finish this. And so I just put pedal to the metal and got it done. And I felt I really, I felt really accomplished. So I think part of the way you circumvent looking back and not having completed your task is to ensure that your year plan is constantly, you're constantly meditating on it. It shouldn't be something that you write and put away, which I've done that before too. And you look back and you go, oh, I didn't, I didn't do what I said I was going to do. And you get down on yourself. Yeah. Have to roll those goals into the next year or you abandon them, Right. Having learned from that, now I try to make sure I'm reading my plan over the course of the year and so that I don't get to the year and I didn't do anything. You know, it's like maybe I I did 80 percent and there are a couple of things that are left over that have to get rolled over into the next year. And it, it's fine, you know, it's just but I'm still 
very motivated by the fact that I want 80% of the things I wanted to do that I said I was going to do, I did those things. Yeah. So that's always the motivational factor for me. Some goals I've been working on for five years that I thought I would get done with in the first year. Yeah, right, right. Sometimes it just takes more time. It doesn't mean that you it's a bad idea or that you can't reach the goal. Sometimes it just takes more time. Yeah. And I think if you're doing, like you say, reflecting and constantly aware of what's going on, then um, it's much easier to understand that some things are there a long game, especially in the music industry. Some things just take way longer than you think. That's true. And sometimes you also get a wild card. I had a goal that I was trying to reach in 2020 that I'm pretty sure I would have reached if it weren't for the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that that was quite a wild card. Some stuff is just really out of your control, you know, like, um, and I think that's also important to keep in mind. Sometimes you have to wait. Yeah. Doesn't mean the goal isn't viable or that you can't reach it. It's just maybe not the right time. Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, I really appreciate you sitting down. I, I enjoyed all of this. I think people will, will really love it. Please share wherever people can find you or and anything you want to share with people. This is your spot. Throw it all out there. All good. Um, I'm on social media, you know, Ebony Smith Music on Instagram. That's where I probably do my most social media damage. I'm on Twitter as Ebony Smith. I'm on TikTok as Ebony Smith Music. And um, also on YouTube, Gender Amplified is genderamplified.org and Gender Amplified on all socials. And also I have a website, ebonysmith.com. And Ebony is spelled E-B-O-N-I-E. Amazing. I'll put uh, links to all that in the show notes as well so you can click it. Cool. But uh, Ebony, this has been great. I'll let you get back to your day. I, I enjoyed this. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, yeah. Travis, thanks for having me, man. That's it for episode 86. Thanks to Ebony Smith for coming on the show. Please go check out her work with Gender Amplified. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider sharing with a friend that word of mouth is the best way to spread and grow this thing. So I would greatly appreciate any sharing. And finally, thanks to Stephen Boyd for the audio edit on this one. And I will see y'all next time.